she came in, she said directly to my husband, didn't even address me at all. I hope that you are ready to be a single father because she's not going to survive this. I would definitely say it takes a village to raise children. Oh, but I feel like that goes for somebody with a disability or without. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Just because you're disabled doesn't mean that you don't deserve to live. I live a great life having SMA. I wouldn't trade my life for anything, but I don't, I wouldn't wish it upon anybody either, especially my own kids. Corey Jacobson is 29 years old, married with two children. Corey also has spinal muscular atrophy type two, a hereditary and progressive neuromuscular disorder. She is passionate about advocating for equal rights for those with disabilities, learning and teaching about motherhood from a wheelchair, and educating others on disability life in general. Corey is also a monthly blogger for the Colorado Springs Moms Blog. So Corey, thank you so much for talking with me and sharing your story. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. So you have spinal muscular atrophy type 2 or SMA, and I think that's a condition that most people have probably never heard of, and when people have heard of it, they probably are more familiar with the type 1 that's more common and affects infants. So so what is SMA and SMA type 2 specifically? Um, so SMA is a genetic disorder. Um, so both of my parents are carriers of the SMA gene. Um, so myself, my older sister and my younger sister were all affected um, by it. We all have type 2. Uh, my older sister passed away when she was uh, about 10 years old, close to 10 years old. Um, and so SMA affects all of the voluntary muscles in your body. Um, so essentially what it is is we lack a certain protein that creates muscle. So we're not able to like go to the gym and get stronger, per se. Um, so we really have to be careful about maintaining um, and utilizing the strength that we do have. Um, and it is a progressive disease. However, there are several treatments now um, available to patients to help with uh, stopping progression and actually uh, gaining strength as well. Yeah, okay. And... Um... One of my, my next question was going to be how old you were when you were diagnosed with SMA, but I'm guessing you were probably diagnosed younger than your older sister just because your parents always, already had that heads up. Is that true or not true? It is true, yes. Okay. Um, so what was, do you know what that diagnosis experience was like for not just you, but your parents and your, your older sister? Um, so my older sister, uh, she had to get a muscle biopsy done and they tested for SMA and hers was positive. Um, and then when I was born, um, my parents noticed I was not meeting the same milestones as an able-bodied child. And they kind of already knew what the risks were uh, because my older sister had already been diagnosed. Um, but I was tested as well around 14 months of age. Um, and they had to do an EEG and a blood test um, at that point. Uh, and I was also confirmed positive for SMA as well. Okay. And how old was your sister when your parents noticed um, that she had issues and she actually had that muscle biopsy done? So she was a little bit older than I was. I would say probably a little bit over two years old uh, because she was a little bit stronger than myself. So for example, she could walk um, assisted, like holding on to a walker or holding on to like a couch or other furniture, whereas I was never able to walk. Um, so her development started a little bit like she developed a little bit more average uh, than I did, I would say. So growing up with that from a young age, is there a point at which you kind of realized that you were different from other kids in terms of your physical abilities or it just was always so natural to you and having that in your sisters, maybe it wasn't such a, such a realization as you got older? 
I think watching my older sister because she was in a wheelchair as well. Um, I think it just kind of seemed normal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel that different because, like, my parents could walk, for example. Other family members could. But my older sister, who I looked up to, couldn't. And right. she was kind of, like, who I followed for the most part. Uh, but I think when I started school, like, kindergarten, preschool, uh, I noticed, like, all of my peers were able to walk and do things. And I was like, well, you know, I can't do that. But it wasn't, like... It wasn't a negative thing. It was just like, oh, okay, I'm different. And that was that. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way my parents raised us. They didn't make it a big deal. They were like, yeah, you're going to be, you know, you're going to struggle with certain things. You're going to do things differently, but that's okay. You're still going to do it. Yeah. And you're 29 years old now, so I was just calculating. So it was probably like the mid-90s when you were in kindergarten, right? So it's a very different experience for someone with disabilities and in a wheelchair to be in school in the mid-90s and like the mid-50s, I'd imagine, in terms of the accommodations they had available. Oh, for sure. Um, What's the age gap between you and your older and younger sister? Uh, My older sister was about five years older than me, and my younger sister is about eight years younger than I am. Okay. Do you have other siblings or just those two siblings? Just those two, yep. Okay. And, um, I mean, we say the odds start over every time, but still thinking about this as a recessive condition, you know, with a 25% chance with each pregnancy, it's still, it's always a little surprising to hear that your parents, you know, still had like the three children who all had. had Yes, that was, yeah. It's, uh, I have like friends that have children who come SMA, they have like several children, only one is affected. Uh-huh. But then I also know other families where, like, all three of their kids are also affected. Did your parents, when your sister was being diagnosed, when you were diagnosed, did you see a geneticist? Or do you know if they talked to a genetic counselor or what their what the medical care was like, how they were learning that information and what the diagnosis meant? Uh, we saw the MDA clinic at our hospital where we lived. Um, so they kind of covered all the bases as far as that goes. Um, I don't believe my parents saw a genetic counselor like prior to pregnancy uh-huh. um after my sister was born they were talked to of course by like the neurologist uh to diagnose my sister and they went over like you know this is the chances if you have another baby um there's one in four chance they will be also affected mm-hmm. but my parents always wanted three kids it didn't matter to them so they were willing to take that risk yeah um, did they talk to them about, I'm thinking it probably would have been about any like testing options available during pregnancy or before pregnancy with IVF? That would have been all pretty new at the time. Yeah, I don't think that that was really an option that was given to them at that point. Yeah, okay. So you were saying when you went to kindergarten and you were in a wheelchair, then that was the first time that it started to seem pre- pretty different, but you had a pretty good attitude about it. Um, what was it like for you going through not just kindergarten, but the rest of elementary school? And then how did that change as you got older? Um, Elementary school, I think, was probably the easiest because at that age, nobody's driving, nobody's going out to parties, nobody's going out doing these things that, like, I could not participate in. So Uh it was easier at that age and that level to include me in physical activities. So, for example, like, PE class... Uh, our teacher would always make all the games accessible to me uh, because they were easy enough to adapt. So I was always included um, in things like that. Or field day at school, they made games that were able, like, fit to my abilities as well. Mm-hmm. So I never felt really left out. But it was harder, I think, as I got a little bit older, middle and high school, because my peers were doing things like going on dates or learning how to drive or joining like group sports that couldn't be adapted Mm -hmm. uh, because it would make it, you know, unfair technically. Um, So that was a little bit harder because I was a little bit more left out at the beginning, but I just found things that I could do and I really immersed myself in stuff that I was capable of. Like what are some examples, like what sort of things did you enjoy doing in high school or extracurriculars or did you find where it wasn't so much of a limitation or a barrier? Um, so I was in band in uh, middle school. I did an art club. I did a book club. Um, then in high school, I was in the drama club. Um, I was also in another book club in high school. Um, I did some tutoring. I did AP classes. 
uh, things that like really stretched my mind more so uh-huh. um, and challenged me in that respect. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. Like academics were uh, a strong point for me my whole life. And I, uh, I enjoyed school in that respect. Yeah. And did you go to college after high school then? I did. Yeah. Well, I actually started college when I was in my senior year of high school. My high school paid for us to go to college. And so my senior year, I was mostly at the community college. Uh, but I earned like 60 credits that year. So that was great. Yeah. And then what did you do? So you did your AA through community college? Yeah, I got, um, I got my associate's degree in radio and TV broadcasting. Uh-huh. Um, and it was at a really cool program. I liked it a lot. Uh, and then I want to continue uh, my education in psychology, actually. Um, so I'm looking into going back to school for that. Okay, but you haven't done that yet? Uh, not yet. Okay. Um, and I know you mentioned dating earlier, and I think from, from emailing with you, you've been married for eight years and you have two children, right? Yes. So let's see, you're 29, so you would have gotten married about 21. So how did you, how did you meet your husband, and how, how did that go with um, the normal obstacles that you mentioned related to dating? Um, so we originally met online, um, which is becoming a lot more common nowadays for everybody. Um, but back when we started talking, um, online dating was a little bit newer. Um, but it was just easier for me because online I could put all the information about myself that I felt comfortable with and like potential dates could read it on my profile and if they felt like dating somebody with a disability was going to be too much of a challenge for them that they didn't have to pursue that any further so it kind of saved time for myself and them like I put everything out there like yes I have a disability no it doesn't affect my mental capacity um, I'm still active. I still could do all these things. Um, it's just I can't walk is pretty much all it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I let people know ahead of time because I really didn't want to get involved with somebody that just it wasn't going to work out. So that was helpful. Um, and I think online dating gives you that opportunity to like choose how to approach things. Uh-huh. And then it makes it a little bit less awkward than if you're like in public or, you know, kind of a like meeting at like school or work kind of a deal. Yeah. Um, but I met a lot of uh, people from there. Some were great. Some were awful. Which is uh, every, everyone's online dating experience. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, you, you kiss a lot of frogs before you find that Prince Charming, you know. Uh-huh. So, uh, but it worked out really well. My, hus- my now husband and I started talking. Uh, before we met in person, we talked almost every day. We like became best friends really quickly. We just really hit it off. We had, like, that instant connection. Uh-huh. Um, and then we met in person, and it just kind of went from there. That's so nice to hear. Did he, he message you first, or did you message him? He did, actually, twice. I ignored the first one. <laughs> we'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. Did you know that when it comes to planning a family, the ideal time to meet with a genetic counselor is actually before you become pregnant? Speaking with a genetic counselor can help you to understand the many different testing options available to you both before and during pregnancy. From carrier screening to diagnostic testing options and everything in between, Gray Genetics is here to help. In a preconceptual genetic counseling appointment, a certified genetic counselor will also evaluate your family history and discuss any known or suspected hereditary conditions. They can also help you to understand the likelihood of passing on those conditions to the next generation. By connecting with a genetic counselor over the phone or through secure video conferencing, discussing genetic testing or other preconceptual options is more convenient than ever. To learn more about preconceptual genetic counseling or how to make an appointment, go to graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. There's a blog post that you wrote. I'll include the link in our show notes, but it's called View from a Wheelchair, Living in a World that Wasn't Made for Me. But I was... Like you write in, you know, like there's a lot of different bullet points of scenarios that you've run into. And I was kind of shocked at some of these things that people have said to you. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people don't realize the kind of things that get said. 
Um, so one of them you said, so the heading is, can you imagine? And then one of the bullet points is taking on the world of dating and potential partners, completely dismissing you because you're disabled and that's just too much for them or that you're not capable of a deep and meaningful relationship. Um, did you have those kind of experiences online, like people messaging you, um, with like negative comments or just, um, responding negatively to you when you would reach out to them? Oh, for sure. Like there was a lot of, like I had dealt with a lot of like really rude comments and then I had some people that were just honest, but they were nice about it. If that makes sense, like they would be like, Hey, you seem like a really great person, but like our interests and abilities just, it would be very hard because we don't match up. Like, if I were to date somebody that's, like, an avid, avid hiker, like, that's not something that I can really do. Uh, unless it's an accessible trail, which is hard to find. So I wouldn't want somebody to miss out on something they love or are passionate about because I'm not able to do it. Um, you know what I mean? I feel like disabled or not, finding somebody that matches with your likes, your passions, your dislikes is really important. So that wasn't any different for me. Uh, but then I had some people that would respond or even message me just to be mean. Uh, like I had somebody message me that had looked at my pictures and said, wow, you're really skinny. You must be on drugs. Wow. And I was like, apropos, no. Apropos of nothing too, right? <laughs> yes. So it just, there was a lot of like good and bad. And like I would prefer people to be honest. So if I message somebody that I'm interested in, and they were like, hey, I just don't think it's going to work out. I would much rather them say that in the beginning than try to waste my time. Right. Yeah. Um, what was it like once once you met your husband and your relationship can kind of transition from that phone relationship to being in person? But I'm assuming he's not in a wheelchair and doesn't have a, any disabilities. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Yes. So he was actually in the Army when we met. Um, and that was why I ignored his first message was because... I did not think that I could handle dating somebody in the military. Uh, I didn't think the lifestyle was something I could do. Uh -huh. uh, just with, like, deployments and things like that, that was going to be hard. Yeah. Um, but I was like, you know, if he's willing to give me a chance, I'll do the same. Uh, but once we met in person, we were together pretty much every day. Huh. Um, just hanging out, like, going out, doing things. Uh, we both really like hockey. Uh -huh. So uh, one of our first dates was a hockey game. We had a great time. Um, and then he gradually started doing some of my care so that we could be like on our own mm -hmm. and I didn't have to have like a caregiver or something with us, which was great. So what was, what was that like before, um, you met your husband? Like to what extent can you do the care things you need on your own? And what are the things that, you know, your parents helped you with for longer than would be the case for other children or when you had like a, maybe a professional caretaker coming in? Um, so my parents did mostly everything uh, for me until I was like 14 or 15. So I need assistance with like bathing, going to the restroom, getting dressed, um, transfers. I need a full assistance with um, getting and a transfer, meaning like into and out of your wheelchair. Yes. Or to my bed or onto the toilet, things like that. Uh -huh. um, so I would get like cradle lifted, like kind of like a baby. Uh -huh. um, and then so I got my first... Uh, outside caregiver I got when I was about 14 or 15 um, and it was life-changing to have somebody outside of my parents caring for me like it gave me a huge sense of independence uh, I felt like I could do things that I wanted to do without having to bother my mom or dad or whatever like go shopping and not have to worry about it or uh, stuff like that so that was great um, and I had about 40 hours a week of outside care uh, at that point so and was that something that was always scheduled like you knew when that person would be coming to help you or was it on call to a certain extent um, it was typically scheduled mm -hmm. um, there were a few uh, like days where like they had a reschedule they'd come later or I was out of town so we would reschedule but for the most part it was uh, we did like Monday through Friday nine to five kind of thing and then on the on the weekends, though, is that hard to, you know, if you're saying you're 14, 15, and that gave you a huge feeling of independence, like a lot of teenagers, they have the most feeling of independence on the weekends. Right. Um, so I would get care every once in a while on the weekends. It was just a lot harder to staff mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people were, you know, with their own families or 
things like that on the weekend. So I didn't have a full coverage on the weekends. Uh -huh. um, but sometimes, like, my caregivers would fill in on the weekends and we'd go, like, my parents would go out of town. So they would stay with me overnight and help out kind of thing. Or, like, they would take me to go to a movie or whatever with my friends. Yeah. Do you have an outside caregiver now or is it just your, your husband at this point? Um, I do have two, actually, outside of him. Okay. Yep. Um, I imagine that that at a certain point, you know, even if he was willing to take that on initially, like also gives you a little bit of a feeling of independence. <laughs> um, <laughs> for know? sure. Yes. <laughs> from, from your marriage, not to be relying on him to be both your husband and your caretaker. Yeah. So when he got out of the military, uh, in 2013, shortly before our first daughter was born, um, and after he got out, he became my full-time caregiver for a little while. Um, but then it just became like too much for everybody mm -hmm. um, to have him do everything plus like the household stuff, like chores around the house um, and my care. And then it's just hard because like everyone thinks like, oh, spending 24-7 together with your significant other sounds amazing. And it is at first, but then you get tired of each other yeah, and you want a break and it's like it's, it's needed for both of us. Right. Um, so I have about... 50 hours a week right now outside of him uh, of caregivers that come in. And it's, it's really good for us all. Yeah. Um, and you have two children. How old are your children? Um, so my oldest just turned six and uh -huh. she's in first grade. Good. And my youngest will be two on August 15th. Cute. <laughs> and that was another thing that you mentioned in your in your blog post. Like one of the bullets is um, like, can you imagine being out to dinner with your family and having strangers come up to sympathize with how hard it must be for your husband to take care of the kids on his own, even though you're the one who birthed them and you're an equally important and active part of their lives. Um, or having people say it's absolutely astounding that he hasn't walked out on you yet due to your problems. Um, and I, I feel like a, like a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot of every single couple, um, you know, has to navigate how you kind of share childcare. <laughs> um, right. But for you guys, it must have been unique. Like what were your conversations like about having kids and how do you work that out? Um, so I think a lot of it was like we focused more on like how we wanted to handle like discipline or rewards or school like the normal kind of questions that you have before you have kids uh -huh. and like of course we had all of these ideas of like what we were going to do and not do as parents because we didn't have kids <laughs> and all of that was basically thrown out the window once we had our kids uh, -huh. uh like we weren't going to do screen time and we weren't going to give them like sugar and all this stuff and I'm just like if I can get my kids to sit and watch the iPad and eat fruit sacks for 20 minutes so I can get stuff done. I will do that. Like, <laughs> and we, so we had a lot of like expectations that changed when they were born. But I think like the biggest thing is that like, he knows how important it is to me to be involved as much as I can. So things like getting them dressed or giving the baby a bath or changing a diaper, like I can't do those things physically. Mm -hmm. So he kind of does that, but then steps back and lets me do what I can do. So, like, I can take my oldest to the park by myself, and I can take, like, I can hang out with my little one and, like, feed her or, like, play blocks or things like that that I'm able to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so everybody that, like, is around me and my kids, like, all try to foster that, like, interaction with us. Yeah. Uh, because they know that it's important to me, so. Yeah. And how do your how do you how have your kids reacted to your disability? Like I'm sure that, you know, growing up for them it's you know, initially it's totally normal and now as your oldest daughter is in first grade, um, probably most of her classmates don't have, you know, parents in a wheelchair. Um, I don't think that it really bothers her as much as like other people might think because we've always been the type of family that like we notice differences. Mm -hmm. But we also realize that being different doesn't equal bad. Right. So, for example, we have a couple of friends who are, they're a lesbian couple and they're the, they have kids mm -hmm. and they're like, they are the best parents that I've ever met. Um, and so my daughter one time was like, oh, why do they have two moms? And I was like, that's just how their family is set up. Some families have two dads, some have two moms, some have a mom and a dad, or some have just a mom or just a dad. And she's like, oh. Well, I wish I could have two moms. That sounds fun. 
And I was like, yeah, it totally does. And that was, that was all she cared about. Yeah. Was like, yeah. well, that sounds fun. Yeah. And it's that a, was it. It's a, I feel like it's a beautiful thing about that age too. It's a, like an age when children are just like naturally accepting and non-judgmental and kind of take things in stride. Yeah. So we really, really want to foster that. Um, obviously my youngest is a little bit too young for it, but um, as they get older, like we really want to encourage them to be accepting and including, uh, of everybody, like regardless of their differences. And we attended the SMA conference actually back in July or June, July. And, uh, my daughter got to go to the kids area where there was a bunch of kids with SMA also. And she was like helping them all. And like, she would get down on their level to play. And like, I didn't have to say anything. Mm-hmm. Like I just watched her and she just knows what to do. And that was, that was really cool to see. Yeah. Um, is there anything uh, other than like taking care of your children and kind of how you divide up the the care responsibilities between you and your husband that you feel like is really different um, compared to families where one of the parents is not disabled? Uh, but we've had a, we've faced some challenges like with accessibility barriers and things like that. Or like I get like I said, we get a lot of comments from people like. My husband is such a saint because he deals with it. And, like, I don't get a lot of credit for, like, my involvement with them, mm-hmm. uh, which is hard. And so he tries to, like, really, like, exaggerate. Well, not exaggerate, but explain to people, like, she does a lot. Like, sometimes she does more than I do. Mm-hmm. And nobody sees it, though, is the thing. So it's, like, we try to make sure that, like, people know, like, even if you're disabled, like, you can be an active part of your kids' lives um, to try and break down that judgment because it's not fair and it's hurtful. I interviewed a patient on this podcast a while ago who had, she herself wasn't disabled, but had sons who were disabled with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And okay. Reading, reading your same blog post related to um, some of the inclusion issues, your, like, things that you can do reminded me of some of the things she said. Um, or in your, can you imagine, too, just you know, getting somewhere like to a party or, and then just realizing like you can't go on, you know, because it's not, uh, you know, it's not wheelchair accessible. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think that people who are not disabled can do, you know, short of, um, like creating accessibility where it doesn't exist that are kind of like public functions, like what can individuals do, um, to, to create like a more inclusive atmosphere for people who are disabled? I think a lot of times people are afraid to ask. Uh-huh. Um, and honestly, like, from my own perspective and from talking with my peers that have disabilities, like, we're all unanimous in the fact, like, please just ask. Like, if you don't know if my chair can go up a certain ramp, instead of just not inviting me, be like, hey, so we're going to this place. It's got a ramp, but it's really steep. Do you think you can handle it? Mm-hmm. Like, I, if I can't, I'll let you know, but it might turn out that I actually can. Yeah. And I think it's just better to, like, talk with the individual, get their opinion on it first before you judge it yourself, mm-hmm. because we're going to know our situations best. Right. We're the ones that live it every day. We're the ones that, you know, have been through all these situations before. Um, so I think it really just, like, don't be afraid to ask. Like, we're not going to be offended. You know, it's not going to hurt our feelings. Like you might be surprised at the answers that you'll get. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so what, the, what is the life expectancy usually for someone with SMA type 2? Um, I know your sister passed away quite young when she was just 10 years old, you said? Yeah, she was almost 10. Okay. Uh, but it's honestly changing at this point uh, because of all the new treatments and the medical advances that are available. Um, so really, it it varies so much that I don't think I could comfortably give you a direct answer Uh Um, because they, like I have peers that are in their sixties and seventies that have type two. At this point, they're living like normal life expectancies. uh, And it just, it really depends on like how like you keep yourself healthy, how you take care of your body. Um, And then also like utilizing those tools that are out there now, like uh, non-invasive ventilation cough assist, the, the treatments that are out too. How is your medical care different um, with your SMA2 diagnosis? Do you have a lot of doctor's appointments or a lot of these things, things that you can do on your own at home? 
Um, no, I have, so I can do a lot at home, but I do have a lot of extra appointments, more than like the average adult would probably have, because I have like a pulmonologist, I have a neurologist, I have my primary doctor, I see the gastroenterologist, um, I see like my medical equipment company, I see my DME for like my wheelchairs and my uh, like combo chair and my Hoyer lift and all that stuff. So there's there's always something going on. Yeah. Um, but like I don't mind it. Like it's uh, it's kind of a pain to have a lot of appointments, but it also keeps me healthier and um, like I get news on like the new treatments and stuff or like new ideas on how to help myself like feel better or like get more independence and stuff like that so mm -hmm. and what are the things you mentioned that some of it just depends on um keeping yourself healthy like what are the things that, that your doctors recommend that you do to to keep you as healthy as possible and to extend your life um so a cold can turn really dangerous for us so I have like a medical regimen that if I start to feel like I'm getting a cold like I start it right away so that means around the clock breathing treatments with my nebulizer using my cough assist um doing suction like to clear out my sinuses um using my ventilator potentially upping the settings um to give myself better breathing support and then also things like keeping your house clean like disinfecting things avoiding people that are sick uh Stuff like that. I mean, it's hard with two kids to avoid that, but um, we do our best to, like, disinfect and keep them healthy so I stay healthy, too. Yeah. And in 2008, SMA was added to the list of recommended screenings um, for diseases as part of newborn screening in the U.S., and I think different – some states have that in place. Some are working on it. What are your thoughts on newborn screening for SMA? I guess I never understood why it wasn't already – uh, because with SMA, especially now, the earlier the diagnosis, the better the outcome. So as soon as you have that diagnosis, you can get right on treating it. And especially now because there's two treatments available. Um, one of them is available for infants up to two years of age. And then the other one is approved for anybody with SMA with any type. Um, but the sooner you get all those treatments, the sooner you do the SMA protocol of like, uh, nutrition and breathing treatments and things like that, um, the better you're going to be from the get-go. So I, I'm all for it. I think it's necessary. Um, and I, I'm honestly surprised that it hasn't been just added, like, universally at this point. Yeah. I think it's partly the nature of newborn screening, testing all these conditions at the same time and what you're able to test for early. And then because SMA is usually caused by deletions, um, but then if you're if you don't have a deletion, it's possible that you could still have it based on a mutation. So I feel like there's just technical issues that yeah. probably made it a little bit trickier to to incorporate it on the test the way others were. Right. Um, and SMA is another one of those that I think you know some societal guidelines uh, recommend uh, offering to women. Uh, as part of prenatal or preconceptual screening. How do you feel about that? Um, I think that offering uh, testing, whether it's before pregnancy or in utero, is helpful. But I think that the way it's presented is kind of off-putting, especially to me. Because um, like when I was pregnant with my first child, we saw a genetic counselor, and she asked if my husband had been tested to see if he carried the SMA gene because I, as a person who's affected automatically by carrier, mm -hmm. um, they were like, well, your chances, you know, if he's a carrier, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I know, we know what the risks are. And they're like, well, did you want to get, um, uh, like, testing, like, in vitro to see if your daughter will be affected? And I said no. Um, the geneticist was like, well... We could do the testing in that way if she is a if she is affected, you could choose whether you would like to continue the pregnancy or not. And I was mm -hmm. like, Are you sitting here telling me as a person who has this disability that I should not carry a child to term with it because of what reason? And she was like, Well, just you know, life can be hard. I was like, You're 
I live this life. I understand what the challenges are. And I was like, but that's not something that I just feel like it's kind of blurring some lines of like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I'm not sure what the word is, but like basically trying to eliminate people that have disabilities. Or eugenic might be one of the words yes. you're looking for. Yep. That's <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, I mean, it's a little surprising and also disappointing to hear that that was your experience with genetic counseling. Cause it sounds like, you know, they were making some pretty big assumptions rather than asking you, you know, is this yes. to start with, like, are you concerned about the possibility of having a child with an SMA? Like might've been a good place to start. Right. And that's, uh, that's kind of how I thought too. But I mean, we we knew the risks going into it, um, but it wasn't a concern to us. I was like, you know, if if we are, like, if we do end up having a child with it, like, who better to raise her than myself, mm -hmm. who's lived it for this long? And um, both of my daughters are unaffected. Um, but either way, it was kind of one of those things. Like, we wanted children regardless, and I feel like. Just because you're disabled doesn't mean that you don't deserve to live. Yeah. Um, so it was it was a hard conversation to have. Uh, but I like I do want to note too, it's a very personal choice. So like just because that's what my husband and I chose doesn't mean that's right for everybody. Uh -huh. um, that's just what we felt was right for our family. Right. Did you decide to get carrier testing done for your husband, either for SMA, or did you just get carrier testing done for other genetic conditions in general, or did you just opt out of all of that? So we did not get any carrier testing for him uh, because it wasn't covered under his insurance and it was really expensive at the time. So both of our daughters were tested at birth. Yeah, and I think the offhand, I think the carrier rate for SMA, assuming both of you are like Northern European ancestry, is like about 1 in 40 or so. Yep, that's about what it is. If, were you concerned like during pregnancy or I don't know if concerned is the right word, but was it something that you thought about? You know, people think, am I having a girl? Am I having a boy? Did you think like, am I going to have a child with SMA, without SMA? I think we were like slightly concerned about it. But I was also worried about everything else that could potentially happen. <laughs> so I was like, what if she has like other birth defects or if she has, you know, a different disability or if she, you know, what if they grow up and get hit by a bus? Like there's always that unknowns when you're a parent. It's like there's all you always worry that something's going to happen to your babies. And so it was like SMA was just another one of those things to worry about. I guess the difference is, like you were saying, you know, if you had a child with SMA, who better to raise that child than you? But it's, with SMA, it's something that's known that you, you know, it's familiar to you and you know how to deal with. Whereas all of those other, yes. those other many, like thousands of other genetic conditions and birth defects would have been totally new things. Right. And like, I feel like I, I'm pretty well versed in the medical community and I know how to navigate like healthcare and insurance and like services like that so I was like I feel like I'm pretty I felt pretty prepared to handle something if that were to come up uh, but thankfully like like I said both of the girls are unaffected um, so that was good but I was like I feel like I could have handled it if it was thrown our way yeah. it's just it's not something that I would choose for anybody like I live a great life having SMA I wouldn't trade my life for anything but I don't, I wouldn't wish it upon anybody either, especially my own kids. Right. Was your pregnancy considered higher risk at all related yes. to that? And like, yeah, how did, how was that different? Did doctors, were they concerned about the idea of you being pregnant? Uh, yes, they kind of didn't know what to do with me for a while. <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty new, right? Like, I think it's pretty new. So SMA type one is the most common. Um, and people don't usually survive childhood or didn't used to, and then SMA two, three, four, and they get less common as they go on. And it used to be people with SMA type two, I think lived just to their twenties or thirties. So I'm guessing a lot of your physicians, um, you know, like you're the first time they're encountering these, these issues. Yes. Uh, that was interesting at best. Um, <laughs> we had a lot of interesting comments that were made, interesting questions that were posed to us by doctors nonetheless, uh, because they just, they didn't know what to do. Like there, there are a handful of moms with SMA now, um, that have given birth, like, uh, 
and carried their own biological children, but it just, it's so small out there. Like, you could research it, but you're not going to find a whole lot. Yeah. Um, so they were just kind of grasping at straws at that point to try and figure out what was going to be the best way to handle it. Uh, my second pregnancy, I would say, went a lot smoother than the first in some respects because I saw the same team of doctors the second time, and we kind of knew, like, okay, this is what we need to do different now. Um, so we learned from the first one. It got better with the second one, so it went a lot better, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we got a lot of interesting uh, stuff that had happened during, like, my first pregnancy. I saw the high-risk doctor in Denver, and she, I thought she was great. I met her once for my first appointment up there. She was great. Um, and then I had another appointment with another doctor, uh like a couple weeks later, she came in, the first doctor that I saw, and she said uh, directly to my husband, didn't even address me at all, and said, like, I hope that you are ready to be a single father because she's not going to survive this. Oh, my goodness. And I'm already emotional. I'm already scared. Like, it was a whole, you know, new experience for us both, and I'm just like, what? And then she left the room, and I never saw her again. Oh. So that... That was scary, uh, but it's it sucks a little bit because um, I had my second daughter at the same hospital where she worked and she no longer works there, but I really wish she did because I wanted to bring both of my kids in one day and be like, okay, look at where we are. Right. Like, look how good we're doing. Like, I survived because I just, I don't think that that stuff needs to be said like that. Yeah, like not constructive, like she not had helpful. <laughs> not even a little bit, and it wasn't even factual yeah like she had nothing to base it on she didn't say like oh because of this these are the risks or whatever it was just this is what's gonna happen bye was she it's strange to me that she came in said that left you didn't see her again was do you think like she got you were assigned to a different physician or was that a, that was a high risk OB? yeah so she was the head of the high risk clinic that i saw okay. um and then so i just saw another doctor under her instead which was great because I did not want to see her again anyways yeah, yeah I guess that could that could also go on the list of things <laughs> on your blog post can you imagine it's like no not really yeah that was not something we did, uh, expected because we had another doctor also an OB doctor that asked us uh during one of our routine appointments he asked my husband and I he's like so how did you guys conceive hmm. and I was like well what what exactly do you mean by that question and he's like, well, I just, like, I assumed that, like, it wasn't the normal way. So did you use, like, a turkey baster? Like, those were his words. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, um, no. And I like, why would you ask that question? Like, it didn't provide any gainful knowledge to him other than he was curious. And I'm like, why would you ask that to somebody? Yeah. And I was like, no, we conceived the natural way like any other couple would have. And he was shocked, like, that, that he didn't know that that was possible. Yeah. I think, I think I mean, part of that probably comes from, you know, there are people in wheelchairs that have paralysis, you know, that are in wheelchairs for different reasons where that could be the issue. And it's probably just related to a lot of ignorance um, <laughs> surrounding, like, all the many different yeah. reasons that people can be in wheelchairs. But especially depressing to hear that coming from a medical professional, you know, that he couldn't have, like, looked up a bit on his own or just asked a better question right that's what I thought like just look it up if you're curious like I'm more than willing to educate everybody anybody on my situation like our situation um, especially with having kids because it's so it's not something that you run across very often mm -hmm. but I'm like there's a way to ask things like use a little bit of tact I guess mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier, like, there's some drugs out there that are pretty exciting for SMA right now, and I don't know anything about that. So what is what is happening, um, just like broad strokes, for those of us who are uninitiated right now related to treatments for people with SMA that's allowing people to live longer? Oh, sure. Um, so the first one that was FDA approved, it was approved in 2016, um, and it's called Spinraza. So what that is, is an intrathecal injection that helps recreate the SMN protein. Um, and so that you get, it's four loading doses, which are spaced out within every two weeks. And then after that, you get one dose every four months for life. Um, and it helps create 
that protein that creates muscle that we're lacking. Um, and so, like I said, it's intrathecal. Um, that one is most beneficial when given at a young age. Um, it is still effective for adults, but just lesser. Okay. So another, um, another reason where newborn screening becomes especially Exactly. Especially um, I actually know a family who had a daughter. She was diagnosed at four days old. And she started Spinraza like that day almost. Um, she was like a week old. I think she started it. And if you didn't know that she had SMA, you couldn't tell. Because she's developing completely normal, hitting all of her milestones. She's walking, no breathing issues, nothing. You can't even tell. Do you know if that's, yeah. you know if that's type 2 or type 1? She has type 2, yes. But even babies that are born with type 1 that are treated with Spinraza right away um, develop. Like they're able to sit unassisted. They have no breathing issues or swallowing isn't affected um it's it's pretty incredible um and then the other treatment that's out right now is called uh Zolgensma, and that is a one-time dose of gene therapy that you get through an iv um and it's only approved for kids up to 24 months right now um but it's a one-time dose and then they that was a little bit less uh, less information about it right now just because it's pretty new. It was just approved this year. Uh, but there's been a few babies dosed with it already that are developing right on track with their able-bodied peers. Yeah, it's amazing how much has changed just in the past. I feel like I didn't graduate that long ago, but um, you know, the idea of gene therapies was just like a historical snapshot of all the reasons they didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and that's really starting to change a lot. It's incredible. Like there's a there's a third treatment that is scheduled to go to the FDA for approval status the end of this year, I believe they said. Um, and that's called Rizdaplam, and it's similar to Spinraza, but it's an oral dose. So you do every day, you do like one dose of it, but the effects are very similar to Spinraza. So I personally am waiting for that one. To come out because I'm not really a good candidate for Spinraza at the moment um, because our hospital here is not doing it. Okay. So I don't really have access to it at this point. Okay. And how is insurance coverage for all of these drugs? Um, it's difficult. So um, Spinraza is through a company called Biogen and they have a program where if your insurance denies you um, three times, they will cover the cost of the drug. Okay. So that's fantastic because each dose of Spinraza is $125,000. Okay. And then gene therapy is two and a quarter million dollars for their treatment. So it's really hard to get insurance coverage for that one because it is incredibly expensive. Um, and a lot of families with SMA are on government-based uh, insurance because they need the coverage that that gives. But a lot of those government insurances don't want to cover those treatments. And that's so, I mean, one, and that's a, like a one-time dose, right? Where they think then, do they, do they anticipate that those children will then also need something like Spinraza? Or that, that it would just be like um, too early to say? It is possible that they will need Spinraza also. Um, kind of to maintain the like progression of their like uh, SMN protein like creation. But... It's like I said, Zolgensma is very new, the gene therapy one, so it's kind of hard to tell long term like what the effects will be. Yeah, two and a quarter million though. That's that's pretty high price tag. <laughs> yeah, imagine there's well, lots of then, Yes, uh, and people are like finding their insurances and they're going to the news and stuff to get coverage because it is life changing. But it is it is so expensive, like nobody can afford it on their own. Right. Um, and then the newest drug that's coming out, uh, Rizdaplam, there's talk that it could cause the cost of Spinraza to go down because Spinraza has that monopoly right now on that treatment. But once there's another choice out there, it might change it. So we'll see. 
What would you say to someone who's listening who maybe they have SMA or maybe they have a different disability and that they're at a phase in their life where they're trying to navigate dating? <laughs> so maybe closer to where you were like 10 or more years ago. And then what would you say to someone who's a little farther along in life and like thinking about having children? I just feel like people in those situations like often might not have people, um, you know, like you who've kind of been there and made things work. I would say for dating specifically like don't let the negative nancies bring you down so there are always going to be people that make those rude comments they don't call you back they don't text you back or you know they're just they say they're not interested that's fine I was like but remember that you yourself have a lot to bring to the table and you have a lot to bring to a relationship Um, and I think a lot of people with disabilities forget that you know they have a lot of self-worth too. Um, there's a lot they can do in a relationship. There's a lot of positive traits you have. Um, and just try to focus on those because the more you focus on the positives in yourself, the more other people see those too. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then as far as somebody that might be like already in a relationship where they might be, you know, thinking about starting a family or having children, uh, but it can be scary Parenting is hard, um, and it takes, I would definitely say it takes a village to raise children. Um, and I feel like that goes for somebody with a disability or without. Mm-hmm. Like, my both of my kids have a lot of amazing people in their lives who we're very blessed to have. Um, they help us with all different kinds of things. They're great. Um, and my kids know that they're loved by not only us, but our friends and our family. Um, and there's always somebody rooting for them. Um, but just don't be afraid to ask for help either. Like, I know that it's hard. You want to do everything for your kids yourself. But it's okay to let other people take over on certain things. Or to, you know, give you that assistance uh, with that. Because it's it's going to take a little bit off your plate. It's going to take some stress off of you. Um, and it's it's best for everybody just to let let those people in to help that want to help. And one last question. I know I kind of asked this earlier when you are talking about your experience with genetic counseling, but a lot of genetic counselors definitely listen to this podcast. And what would, what would be your advice for genetic counselors um, in meeting with people who have disabilities or in bringing up these issues about what people may or may not want to test for during pregnancy or what they may or may not want to do about it? Like how can we approach that in ways that are more, that are more sensitive? Um, I think as far as offering testing, um, they let them know what is available because a lot of times like especially if it's your first child or you haven't even you know you're just starting the idea of starting a family um, sometimes those options aren't as obvious so make sure to let them know like hey this is what's out here this is what's available this is what we recommend but try to keep personal opinions like out of it so give the information give the facts But don't say like, well, I think you should do this because, you know, having a kid with a disability is going to be hard or it might not be a good idea. Like that stuff is probably already things we've thought about, Uh, but it's hard to hear it from other people too. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at greatgenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.